Welcome to Proven Improbable. I'm your host, Maurice Jackson. Today we have an exciting show for investors as we will be having a discussion with the world's most respected credit analyst regarding the United States debt, the politician's solution, and the investor's choice. Joining us today is Rick Rule of Sprott Global Resource Investments. Rick, thank you for joining us today. Pleasure, Maurice. Thank you for having me on. You know, Rick, before we begin today's discussion, please share with listeners why a discussion with Sprott Global Resource Investments will be a prudent move for natural resource investors. Well, I, I suspect that we're in the early stages of both the precious metals and broader natural resource bull market. And I humbly suggest that in the uh, micro-cap natural resource space and the small-cap natural resource space, that is, uh, natural resource investments with market caps below a, a billion dollars, that Sprott is by now probably the most competent and best-known uh, investment advisor on the planet. Uh, aligning yourself with investment experience in a cyclical se- sector that's experiencing a cyclical upturn has historically been one road to wealth. Uh, I would also suggest that most investors on a global basis, perhaps not your subscribers, but most investors on a global basis are substantially underinvested, both in precious metals and in natural resources. And I think that that needs to be uh, addressed by people. Thank you for sharing that. You know, Rick, your work and repute is legendary as a credit analyst. I would like to begin today's discussion with a simple question. And that is, if I, as an individual, borrowed from everyone in town for the last three to four decades and still have not repaid my obligations. Based on those circumstances, would you think of me as a good credit risk? (laughs) I get your point, Maurice, and I guess that depends on uh, what assets you were able to collateral with and how much income you had available to service your debt. The fact that you have been a serial borrower tells me one of two things. Either that you are an extraordinarily good credit or that you are an extraordinarily good salesman. Your point with regards to the U.S. dollar and the U.S. government as a credit is one that I suspect that uh, knowing you, we're going to explore in more detail in this call. (laughs) Absolutely, because taking this discussion now from an individual to a nation Uh, in this case the United States of course, why do you believe investors cannot discern the difference as they continue to deploy capital into bonds that will yield them negative returns in essence? I think there's two reasons for that Maurice, although I have to admit if you press me to honesty uh, that the uh, behavior mystifies me, (laughs) but my experience is twofold. My experience tells me that a lot of big investors are really afraid of the equities markets. That they, and I'm not saying they're right or wrong, I'm just describing their motivations. They see uh, an equities market where uh, margin growth has continued, although sales growth has stalled. And they don't see the economy as being strong enough that future earnings justify current prices which is to say they're nervous about an equities market collapse. And I think some of those very large investors uh, like what they think of as the certainty with regards to repayment from sovereign issuers. If the government doesn't earn the money in tax, it can simply print it. And they believe that losing 2% on bonds is better than losing 30% in the equities market. 
That's the first part of the answer. The second part of the answer is more pernicious, Maurice. And that is that, uh, and I've seen this as an investment advisor for three decades, a, a person's expectation of the future is set by their experience in the immediate past. And we've been in a bond bull market since 1982. So for 35 years, we've been in a bond bull market. The benchmark bond, of course, is the U.S. 10-year Treasury. And in the 35 years that we've been in a bull market, the yield on the Treasury has fallen from 14.6 to 1.4. A legendary bull market indeed. A 90% decline in yield, which suggests a ninefold escalation, if you will, in price. Now, the truth is that towards the end of bull markets, the narrative becomes uh, established by the performance of the instrument. That's how bull markets work. The market becomes the most crowded and the most seemingly attractive when the risk is the highest. And my own suggestion is with the yield having fallen from 15.6 to 1.4, that bull market is much closer to the end than to the beginning. But the truth is that the narrative is particularly strong because it's worked for 30 years, irrespective of whether it can continue to work. So in answer to your question, two things. The fact that sovereign investors know they'll get some of their money back, more than they might in equities markets, and also simply because the trade has worked so long that they're comfortable with it. Well, thank you for conveying that to us. You know, uh, switching gears here, let's move on to politics. And Rick, can you provide investors with a rendition of what I believe was Ambrose Bierce's definition of politics? Yeah, I can. I think it was Ambrose Bierce. There, there's two quotes I have, and I'm uncertain really as to their origins, but I think they were Ambrose Bierce. Uh, my favorite, of course, is the one about elections being best understood as advanced auctions of stolen property, <laughs> describing the fact that a politician's job in terms of getting elected is to... Um, represent sub-constituencies that are motivated to steal other people's wealth and protect their own wealth from, from theft, hence the description advanced auction and stolen property. The other uh, is of less determinate origin. It suggests that you understand the process of politics by looking at the root of the word. Poly, of course, from the Latin for many, and tick from the English colloquial for small blood-sucking insect. If you look at the word as being many small blood-sucking insects, then you understand the nature of the word politics. Thank you for giving me the chance to regale your audience with that. Well, thank you for sharing that, and there's so much truth in that statement. Um, the reason I bring that about is because bonds are one way to pay for the debt. The second is a subject that we like to discuss as, as well, which is confiscation. I'm sorry, theft. I'm misreading my notes here. Uh, taxes. Taxes. That's what it is. The second way to satisfy these debt obligations is taxes. Let's delve into that subject matter a little bit further here as we discuss the future options we have here before us with Clinton and with Trump. As a credit analyst, what are your views on either party um, taking the nomination and how does that affect us as a nation? I don't think that the difference between either candidate with regards to the viability of the current fiscal situation in the U.S. is very good. Uh, neither party would seem to me to be committed to cutting government expenditures 
freeing the economy, uh, abandoning uh, central bank manipulation of the interest rates, uh, lessening uh, quantitative easing, or reducing tax. Uh, I would suggest that the difference between them in any of those regards is nil. So the choice really is Tweedledum and Tweedledumer. Uh, I have my preference between the two in terms of not being personally repugnant, but I'll keep that to myself. The truth is that I don't think it's possible that a candidate who would subject himself or herself to the intense scrutiny uh, and humiliation of running for president uh, I don't think a person would do that if they weren't such a, so power hungry and so demagogic that the power uh, obviated any pain associated with the process. So I'm very uh, skeptical about whether we could in this country induce someone to run who was suitable to the office, ironically. <laughs> well, you know, regarding politics... Uh you know, the United States, in essence, has three options. And for the record, Gary Johnson and the libertarian option is my option. And, and the reason I say that in particular is that one of the concerns I have, Rick, is that people or citizens, they vote with their wallets and not on the merits of the Constitution. So my concern, and I think a lot of the listeners' concerns, is that this debt obligation that we have, the way we're funding it, is going to continue to grow and grow and grow. And I think you've just clarified that position in essence for us. Um, switching gears, can you please convey why having stewardship in something that is payment in full, analog, and has never gone to a value of zero, such a prudent decision for investors based on today's discussion? Sure. Obviously, for people who haven't heard you before, what you're talking about is physical ownership of precious metals, uh, a medium of exchange that simultaneously a store of value. Uh, the truth is that precious metals have functioned as money, uh, as a medium of exchange, for centuries because they aren't a promise to pay. They represent payment in and of itself. If somebody gives you gold, you don't have to trust them and you don't have to trust the instrument that you have been given. Uh, if you view that in juxtaposition to other forms of payment. Fiat currencies, as an example, they're not really payments, they're promises to pay. And they work well uh, as long as social trust remains. How long will social trust remain? Well, hopefully for my lifetime and your lifetime too. But hope is a very poor investment strategy. Let's return to the central theme of your question which is, of course, the debt. Uh, somebody who is a buyer of U.S. sovereign debt, and by the way, of course, the dollar bill is a different form of sovereign debt, uh, has to concern one's self with society, and society is represented by the U.S. government's balance sheet and income statement. And in both cases, there are cause for concern. You'll recall, uh, Maurice, the narrative in 2009 after the 2008 
liquidity crisis, where the narrative went that U.S. on balance sheet sovereign obligations at 15 or 16 trillion dollars were unserviceable. They were thought to be unserviceable, of course, because people were afraid as a consequence of events that occurred in the immediate past. Well, today, uh, that same account is $19 trillion in deficit. In other words, we've gone from a $15 trillion obligation to a $19 trillion obligation. And because the events of 2008 are in the distant past, people believe that $19 trillion in obligation is now serviceable than $15 trillion in obligation. I don't know if this goes to the state of mathematics education in the United States or something else. <laughs> the next place that we have to go, of course, is to the off-balance sheet obligations. If my memory serves me correctly, the off-balance sheet obligations, according to the Congressional Budget Office, and by the way, look at my, my, my picture, I'm 63, uh, I am an off-balance sheet obligation. The off-balance sheet obligations have increased from about $60 trillion to some number in excess of $100 trillion. And one has to ask oneself whether the income statement, that is the private income of all Americans, net of sustaining capital investments, is sufficient to pay off $100 trillion in off-balance sheet obligations and $19 trillion in on-balance sheet obligations before we take into account private obligations the obligations of state and local government, and a myriad of unfunded public, uh, public pension obligations. And my suggestion is, while I don't know what the answer is, I'm very afraid of what that answer might be. We would seem as a society to be in the range of four times as indebted as we were 12 or 13 years ago, without a concomitant increase in either GDP or, much more importantly, the margin generated by the economic activity that generates GDP. You know, thank you for conveying the, the GDP. Uh, one of my concerns there is net exports. I can't recall the last time it was in a surplus. <laughs> it has to have been, was it the 80s? Am I mistaken on that? Uh, I don't know the answer to that, although the, uh, the deficit isn't as bad as it looks when you bring back in financial flows and service exports. Uh, it's odd that uh, at the same time that we seek to reduce, if you will, the value of our franchise, our franchise becomes more important, which is a different way of saying as unpleasant as the situation in the United States is, the situation in the United States is better than the situation of many of our competitors. And the consequence of that is, as Doug Casey says, that there is ironically a strength in the U.S. dollar merely because it's the prettiest mare at the slaughterhouse. If you compare the dollar with the renminbi, uh, with the yen, with the euro, uh, all of a sudden, by contrast, the U.S. dollar looks pretty good as opposed to absolutely good. Well, thank you for sharing that. And Rick, last question in reference to precious metals here. Um, your advocation for precious metals is, is obvious, but is it limited to just gold and silver, or do you include platinum and palladium in that as well? I absolutely include platinum or palladium. They're sort of uh, hybrid metals. 
What's interesting about platinum and palladium from an investment thesis is twofold. Uh, one, uh, the stuff gets used. It gets used in catalytic conversion, in auto catalysts, in a variety of applications, which means that the stockpile gets smaller. It doesn't get shuffled from one bank vault to another. And about 60% of the world's platinum production, by my view, is uneconomic at current platinum prices. Uh, now, ironically, that number hasn't changed much in four years as a consequence of the devaluation of both the rand and the ruble the two countries that produce most of it. When those currencies fall, the cost of producing the material in those countries decline. But the truth is that the industry can't continue to produce metal for too much longer for less than the cost of production. And if you juxtapose that with the fact that above-ground inventories get used up in fabrication applications, uh, it becomes a very attractive investment proposition. Very well noted. Rick, we've covered a lot of ground here today. Last question for you here. What did I forget to ask? Uh, I think you've done a fairly good job, Maurice. I, I think it's important that your viewers and listeners understand that irrespective of the attractiveness of various forms of bullion relative to various forms of government obligation that it's incumbent on investors to maintain liquidity both in bullion and also in dollars. Uh, important because in a period of volatility and in a period where equity markets could, I'm not saying will, but could stumble, having liquidity will give you the tools and the courage to take advantage of market circumstances like those that occurred in 2008 rather than being taken advantage of by those two circumstances. So, yes, own bullion, and also maintain non-bullion uh, liquidity, too, even though the real cost of owning that uh, insurance, if you will, is relatively high. You know, Rick, for investors that subscribe to this thesis, uh, that have the courage and conviction, do they, uh, does Spark Global still offer a portfolio review? We absolutely uh, offer an, a no-obligation portfolio review with the caveat that that's limited to your natural resource stocks where our, our advice might have some value. Uh, you can avail yourself of that opportunity by emailing me directly, rule R-R-U-L-E, at SprottGlobal.com. Put in the text of your email, not as an attachment, in the text of your email, both the name and the symbol of the stock. And I will return your email with a no-obligation ranking of your natural resource portfolio holdings. You know, for investors that take the opportunity to uh, contact Mr. Rule, please put in the subject line, Proven and Probable, to help streamline uh, those emails. And Rick, on behalf of everyone, we want to uh, thank you for that opportunity. Maurice, it's a pleasure. Thank you for uh, taking on the obligation of spreading the word as you do. Rick Rule of Sprott, Global Resource Investments, thank you for joining us today on Proven and Probable. Thank you for joining us today on Proven and Probable. Remember to like and subscribe for more conversations with the most respected names in the natural resource space. Check out our website at www.provenandprobable.com. The information presented on Proven and Probable 
is provided for educational and informational purposes only, without any express or implied warranty of any kind, including warranties of accuracy, completeness, or fitness for any particular purpose. The information is not intended to be and does not constitute financial, investment, or trading advice, or any other advice. You should not make any financial, investment, or trading decision based on any of the information presented without first undertaking independent due diligence and consultation with a professional broker or competent financial advisor.